Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedorlaomer, king of Elam, and the title king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zoibin, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Verse 3, And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled, and in the fourteenth year Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtarachnaim, the Zum in Ham, and the Emim in Shavea-Karathim, and the Horites in their hill countries of Sear, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Verse 7, Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazar Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zoabim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Sinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So the text from today, chapter 14 of Genesis, is filled with irony. In the first 11 verses, we're told of alliances that kings made with other kings. Now, living 8,000 miles from that area and roughly 4,000 years in the future, it can make understanding the first 11 verses from this chapter kind of difficult. The names are hard to pronounce. The cities that these kings are from are unfamiliar to us. So much of the time, we just either read over them, or if we do any kind of digging at all, we come up with the mere fact that there were four kings on one side and there were five kings on the other. And one set of the kings, they were serving another. And they got tired of serving them. So they pulled a William Wallace, and they stood their ground with the battle cry of freedom. And they were crushed like a worm. So let me summarize the first 11 verses for us today in just plain old English. For 12 years, the four kings of an eastern group of cities, Elam, Shinar, Elisar, and Goyim, they had ruled over five city-states around Canaan. And finally, the five kings of these city-states that are located around the south end of the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea they rebel. That's verses 1 through 3. And a year later, the four kings arrive in their region to reestablish their rule. That's verses 4 and 5. And following a southerly route along the line east of the Jordan River, the four kings defeat every king, every city, and every people group in their path, all the way down to the edge of Canaan's southern wilderness. And then they turn back up north, eventually arriving at the valley of Siddim near the Dead Sea. And there... 
the five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, Zoabim, and Zoar have gathered their forces to take their stand against these northern kings. And the battle apparently doesn't last very long. The five kings are defeated, and their forces flee, some falling into tar pits in the region, and others escape into the hills. And the enemy raiders, they descend on Sodom and Gomorrah, and they loot them. And that's a synopsis of verses 6 through 11. And the irony of all of this can be heard in Proverbs 16:9, which tells us, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. See, we can understand why the five kings, why they would desire to rebel against the four northern kings. And we even think that they might have a reason and a right to rebel, a right to stand up against the oppression of these other kings. We think that they deserved to be free. But when you dig a bit deeper, we find that the kings that rebelled, they were all Canaanite kings, all descendants of Ham. All the kings that they rebelled from, they were kings that were descendants of Shem. Some bells may be going off in your head now. Because 200 years earlier, sometime after Noah and his family had left the ark, he decided, Noah decided, that it was a good idea just to drink a wee bit too much and get a little silly. And his youngest son, Ham, acted shamefully. And not only did he not honor his father, but he slandered him to his brothers, who then did the right thing and prevented anyone else from being exposed to that situation, which brought us to Genesis 9, verses 24 through 26. When Noah woke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had done what he had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be him to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Those five kings may have gotten tired of being under the thumb of those four other kings. They may have decided that they had enough men, enough materials to throw off the rule and become free. But what they couldn't understand is that a man's steps are from Yahweh. How can man understand his way? Proverbs 20, 24, or that no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against Yahweh, Proverbs 21, 30. So matter, no matter how good their plans were, no matter how much of a right they thought that they had, the ironic thing is that they had no chance from the very beginning. The Shemite kings crushed the Canaanite kings, fulfilling Noah's curse that Ham would be enslaved by his brothers. But the ironic thing is that in doing so, the descendants of Sham, they capture Abraham's nephew. Again, there's irony at play here. Because Abraham was a descendant from Shem, and so was Lot. And back in chapter 13, we read, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the, valley, the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar, verse 10. And again, this is ironic because Abram had been commanded by the Lord to go from your country and from your kindred to your father and your father's house to a land that I will show you, chapter 12, verse 1. But following on the heels of that command, 
was a blessing as well, where he said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, verse 2. The ironic thing is that while Abram was married, his wife was barren. No kids, no great nation, no great name. So Abram took along with him his wife and his nephew, Lot. He must have figured that Lot was going to be the means that the Lord was going to use to bless him. It was the only logical thing that he could figure. But as we're told in Jeremiah 10, verse 23, where he says, I know, O Yahweh, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks, who directs his steps. You see, the figuring of Abram, while wrong, was not outside of the will of God. God declares all that will come to pass, and all that comes to pass is the will of God. And we know this because in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, we read, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And that's verse 9. And in the 46th chapter of Isaiah, God once again says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Verses 9 and 10. The ironic thing is, though, that if Lot would have decided not to move into Sodom, he may not have been taken captive with the inhabitants of that city. That battle still would have happened. The plundering of Sodom would have still happened, but Lot would not have been caught up in it. But that he was, this is the will of God for him and even Abram. Verse 12 tells us, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. You see, Lot had made a logical, wise choice in the choosing of the Jordan Valley, that valley that was lush, green, beautiful, like the valley of the Lord, as we read earlier. But rural living must not have appealed to his taste because he moved to the town of Sodom, as told to us in chapter 13, verse 12. And while he may have been happy to settle in Sodom, he was apparently unwilling to defend the city in which he lived. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been with the women when the city fell and was taken. The ironic thing is, is that the Bible never gives us much information concerning the character of Lot. We have to make assumptions concerning him. Since The most that we've been told about him is that he chose the valley of Jordan to live in and then moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now that he was taken captive, there he had all of his goods confiscated along with all these other folks. But even though we have very very limited amount of really relatively little information about him, we all have opinions concerning him and his character. And that reality is reality. 
His day-to-day actions are never told to us. But what is not said of him speaks volumes to us. Because he was with Abram during the initial time of his wandering through Canaan. He was with Abram when he made an altar to the Lord. He was with Abram all during the time in Egypt. And he knew everything that happened there. And he was with Abram when he returned to the land of Canaan. Back to where he had made that altar to God. Where we are told that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He had to have known about the Lord speaking to Abram telling him to leave his home and kindred, telling him about the promise of the land that he was going to give to him. But we are never told that he ever calls upon the name of the Lord, that he ever sacrifices to him or makes an altar to him. We are never told of anything that Lot ever does that gives us the impression that he was a man of character. Dear ones, Young and old, we need to realize this, that your actions today, every moment of every day, that they are a reflection of your character. And you will be known by your character, both by what you do and what you don't do. And your character reflects your relationship with the Lord. And we know this because we know that Abram was no saint, that he was not a perfect human being. We've already seen that he was selfish, that he was a bad husband. I mean, you can't get much worse than selling your wife off. This is what we know of his character by his actions. We know much more about him than Lot. And some of it is really not that good. But the ironic thing is that we don't think bad about Abram, do we? We think positively about him. And we do so because we know that he was chosen by God. And that because of that, he made choices to obey God. And this, that was the character that he was known for. And it must have been known for even in that day as well. Because after the sacking of Sodom, after the plundering of his goods and people, we're told in verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, um, the brother of Eshkel and Anor. These were the allies of Abram. A man escapes from that city, Sodom. And when he does... He doesn't flee to the hills where the king of Sodom and Gomorrah are hiding out. He runs straight to that man that he knows will take action. He heads to Abram. And in verse 13, we once again have a first in the Bible. This is the first mention of that term, Hebrew. The Jewish people, they never refer to themselves as Hebrews in the Bible. And that term Hebrew is one that we're not exactly sure the meaning of. The best guess is that it refers to the predecessor of Abram named Eber, whose name means the other side, which would make sense when referring to Abram since he was one who came from the other side of the river that he lived by. And that Abram was described as a Hebrew is important. And that Abram was described as a Hebrew here, Now, 
is meant to indicate something to us. Again, there's irony here. Because unlike his nephew, Abram had not fallen into the ease and lifestyle and the culture that was all around him. There were cities where Abram lived. There were well-established watering places, places where commerce were done, places where men in their wealth could sit in a city gate and shoot the breeze, become important, and be considered wise, where they could put down roots, a heritage, and become part of building of a city. But as we're told in Hebrews 11 concerning Abram, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, verses 9 and 10. Those that lived around Abram, they knew that he was different than they were. That doesn't mean that he was unfriendly to them or even that they were unfriendly to him. We know that he had allies who were Amorites. But it does mean that by his lifestyle, by his choice to obey the Lord, to live as a no man, he proved his calling and election. Well, let me show you what I mean. When chapter 13, we read, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities and the valleys and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from, from this place, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk through the length of the, and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Where did that lone survivor from the city Sodom, where did he head looking for Abram? Where are we told that he found him at? He came and he told Abram, the Hebrew, who is living by the oaks of Mamre, verse 13. Again, there's irony here. Because let me ask you this. Do your neighbors, do they know you as a Christian? Would that be the thing that they would say of you? Either in a derogatory way or a complimentary way. Or if you become so accustomed to this world that even though that we are told our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20, that we are indistinguishable from the world. If so, it's ironic that even though we're told in 1 John 2.17 that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's ironic that so many who call themselves Christians, who see themselves like Abram and not like Lot, it's ironic that they actually live like Lot. Live like Lot? How so? Well, ask yourself this. If you were to go into the biggest pagan in this city, 
the most, the most atheistic of atheists here, would your home be any different than theirs? Would you find the same entertainment, the same movies, the same music, that same idol in the center of the largest and most well-appointed and comfortable room in your house? Would you have the same size house with similar comforts and similar expensive toys? It's ironic that we can happily go about our lives convinced that all is well, thinking that we don't have to live differently, that we don't have to spend differently, that we don't have to entertain ourselves differently than the world, even though we have biblical mandates that says otherwise, such as when Paul told the church in 1 Corinthians 7, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short, 2,000 years ago he wrote that. From now on, let those who have wives live, wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For this present form of this world is passing away. And what Paul is saying there was that the things of this world, even our human relationships outside of the church, they all need to be tempered and filtered through a heavenly perspective. What Paul is saying there is that the calling of choo and choosing of God is so special that it, that it should be the the defining thing in our life, as it was in the life of Abram. There was something else that that a man who escaped from Sodom knew about Abram. He knew that Abram was a brave man who would act on behalf of his family. Verses 14 through 16. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And as he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants <coughs> and defeated them and pursued them to Horeb, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women and the people. The fact that Abram had 318 men in his household gives us an idea of exactly how large his flocks and herds must have been. And that these men were all trained in war, that tells us of the danger, the ever-present danger that was a constant in the life of that man who lived by faith. And it's an also a great example for us in our day. Yes, we should pray for peace, but we should also be prepared for war. Because the day that that man showed up from, Soda, from Sodom, that would have been a bad day to start training his men for action. Abram had thought ahead. 
he had trained his men not only to shepherd the flocks, but also to defend themselves, prepared them for themselves for this day. And then on this day, Abram sent out to rescue Lot. And to rescue Lot, Abram and his men had to travel at least 200 miles to find the forces that had captured them, a journey that it could have taken up to a week or more to make. And when Abram caught up with those slow-moving forces that were hindered by traveling with all that loot, both the human and the material, we're told that his men were able to defeat the forces, even though it was of greater size, and redeem Lot and the rest of the people taken and their possessions. And then on the way back, as they're heading south, Abram was met by two kings, verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Lemor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave, a tenth, gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but the one, what the young men have already eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. So in verse 17, we're told of two kings. Two kings who come to meet Abram on his return from defeating those kings who sacked Sodom and who stole Lot and the other people with them. And the king of Sodom was one of them. And the ironic thing is that he, along with that king of Gomorrah, they weren't able to do what Abram and his small band of mercenaries were able to do. In fact, in verse 10, we're told that he fled the battle, which led to the sacking of his city. And upon hearing that this Hebrew had defeated the four kings and had plundered the plunderers, he came out of hiding to congratulate this man. And when he arrives on the scene, he finds that he's not the only king there. There was this king named Melchizedek with Abram. And this king brought bread and wine for the men who had been very weary from a forced march, a hard-fought battle, and then a journey home. And he also brought a blessing for Abram. But before we get to the importance of that king of Salem, let's finish dealing with this king of Sodom. So he shows up on this scene and presumably congratulates Abram for his victory. And then he says something very ironic to him. He said to Abram, give me the persons, but take for yourself your, the goods. Maybe when he showed up, he was witness to Abram giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And he figured, I deserve something as well. But in reality, though, that old saying, to the victor goes the spoils, was the reality of this situation. Because all that Abram had acquired was his. He had won it as a prize of war. And the king of Sodom had no right over any of it. And the thing that he was asking, what he's asking is that Abram return his subjects back to him. 
the very subjects that he cared so little about, that he did nothing to free them. He didn't stand in battle to protect them, and he never went after them once they were taken. But now, now that the danger is over, now that they're back safely, now he claimed them as his own. And Abram's reply speaks greatly of his character and even speaks to what he thought of the king of Sodom and even of Sodom itself. Because what is meant when he says that he's lifted his hand to the Lord is that he's made a solemn oath that basically means the Lord do so to me and much more also if I don't keep my oath. But how ironic is it how ironic is it that Abram got rich off of the gifts of Pharaoh in Egypt when he sold Sarai off? And he didn't swear off those gifts. He didn't return them when he was challenged by Pharaoh. But here he's decided that he wants nothing, nothing from this place Sodom or from this king. He didn't want his name tied in at all with Sodom. He didn't want the king of Sodom ever to even think that he, Abram, owed him anything. He didn't want anyone to ever be able to impugn the character of God by equating the servant of God with Sodom in any way. And there's one other ironic thing that happens. Lot returns to living in Sodom. He's just been freed from his enslavement by Abram. He had been hopelessly lost. He was a captive, along with whatever family that he had at that time. And he had to know by then how evil that place was. And yet, when he's finally set free by Abram, brought back to the land that Abram was in, even though he was witness to the completely different matter in which Abram, dealt with the king of Sodom versus the king of Salem, he still chooses to return to living in Sodom. And now, now we can talk about verses 18 through 20. In the book of Genesis, being that it's the first book of the Bible, we find a lot of firsts, which we should. And in verse 18, we find another first in the Bible, the first mention of a priest. A long time after, the, after when the law is given to the children of Abraham, God will, adorn, God, will, God will ordain a priesthood from those children, and he will give them directions on what it is that they're to do. But ironically, though, this priest predates the giving of that law, predates the priestly line of Aaron. Let's discuss what a priest is, what he does. A priest is a man or woman in some cases who stands between a god, either the true god or a false god, and people. He acts, a priest acts as a representative of the god that he serves, and he guides, instructs, and teaches people about this god, and he intercedes for the people to that god. And what we see this priest, this king of Salem do in verses 19 and 20 is just that. He stands as a go-between for Abram and God. 
And in this blessing, this blessing here, which is the only priestly blessing that we are given in the book of Genesis, we are told how, how Abram and his 318 men, how they could possibly pull off, pull off that impossible feat of defeating a much larger army. The answer, that answer is the same answer that will be given to the prophet Zechariah in his prophetic book. When God speaking about the rebuilding of the temple, which would be the first temple that was built about a thousand years after Lot was set free, after the establishment of the people of God, after the instruction of the building of the tabernacle, after the establishment of the kingly line of David and the building of that temple, after all of that, and then the destruction of that temple, God, through the prophet Zechariah, foretells of an impossible task spoken to the prophet Zechariah. He told him that that temple would be rebuilt and even told him how that temple would be rebuilt. He said, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts, Zechariah 4.6. And ironically, <clears throat> that little book of Zechariah, of all the minor prophets, it has the most references to the coming Messiah. The most prophecies of the one who, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. You can't read the book of Zechariah and not see Christ as the theme of all the prophecies given in it. It is he that Zechariah 2, verses 10 through 12, speaks of as coming to dwell with his people. It is he who Zechariah 3, 8, and 9 speak of as coming and will remove their iniquity in a single day. It is he who Zechariah 12, 10 is speaking of where it tells us, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. He is the fountain spoken of in Zechariah 13.1 that will cleanse us from our sins. And it is this God that the king of Salem, the priest of God most high, says is the one who delivered into the hands of Abram the enemies that had taken Lot captive. And the blessing of this, of this priest Melchizedek, it follows the exact pattern that is given to the priests that are part of that covenant of law made through Moses. In number six, God speaks to Moses and tells him, speak to Aaron and his sons saying this, this is how you will bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Verses 23 through 27. The ironic thing, in the book of Genesis, the account of Abram, it takes 14 chapters to tell the account of Abram. The account of the king of Salem is given to us in three verses. Fourteen chapters, Abram. Three verses, king of Salem. 
And it's easy to assume that the one who has these 14 chapters chronicling his life is the one who is important. But the reason that it is important, and it is important, Abram's life is important. The reason that it's important can ironically be missed or even underemphasized because of the prominence of the accounts of men in the Bible that we make of these men. But it was Melchizedek who blessed Abram. And he blessed him by reminding him that the reason that he is blessed is because it is God who is blessing him. That his victory was not at his hands primarily. It was at the hand of God. As saints, I've said this before, if you don't get Genesis 1-1 right, then you're going to get the rest of the Bible wrong. In the beginning, God. The primary actor throughout the Bible is God. It is he who is the author and finisher, not only of our faith, but everything. And we are meant to hang on to this truth and wonder at this truth. That it's God who is the primary actor in all the lives of these men that we are given accounts of. We should never get fixated on these people, but we do. But we should wonder at the God that is directing, leading, governing the men that are chronicled in the Bible. But this doesn't mean that God is easy. We have to be given eyes to see, ears to hear him, even in this Bible. And we who have been given eyes to see, ears to hear, very often we still miss God. Or we think wrongly about him. Let me illustrate this to you and and how that's linked with our text from today. See, there's this account of one of his prophets, of God's prophets, told to us in 1 Kings chapter 19. You're going to need to read this account for yourself. So turn to 1 Kings 19. And I would grab a pen if you have one. If if you don't think that it's not sacrilegious to actually underline in the Bible, you might want to do this. So 1 Kings 19, that's the account of Elijah. And and 1 Kings 19 is the account of Elijah right after this man has just defeated all the prophets of Baal. And he's now, he's run away and he's in hiding because of a threat made by a single woman. We pick up in verse 9. 1 Kings 19, 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I want you to reread that verse again. Look at what it says. Who was it that came to Elijah? Who is it that has just been said to have been speaking to him? The word. That's who. 
And the book of Kings was written 600 years before the gospel of John was penned. That gospel that begins just as the book of Genesis does, focusing on the primacy of God. The gospel that reveals who this word is that comes to Elijah. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1. And this word, this God, the one who is called that has called, who has ordained, who has chosen Elijah as his prophet. He is the one who is asking Elijah, what are you doing here? And he knows what Elijah is doing there. He desires for Elijah to know more about the one who has called him. Because Elijah does know him. Elijah rightly proclaims in verse 10, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for I, for the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am only left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then in verse 11, this word gives this man a command. He says, go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. Elijah believed God. He believed in him. He was not backslidden at this time. The Lord had brought about that defeat of the prophets of Baal. Elijah didn't. But the Lord had used Elijah in that defeat. And now he desired Elijah to know more about the one who brought about that defeat. And this is why he allowed that death threat by that woman to rock Elijah as much as it did. Because Elijah needed to know something that we need to know. Something that he, God, is going to reveal to Elijah after that command that he makes him to go stand before him on the mountain. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. In verse 13, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. And in verse 14, we hear him give the same answer. I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Only this time, the word has come to him, gave him another command based on the revelation that he had just had as to who it is that called him before he was born. Verse 15, And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Heziel to be king of Assyria, and Jehu son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to, the to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu will put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. 
Yet I shall leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bound to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And then Elijah went. And we are never told that he runs away scared again. We are never told of another time that he is overcome by the mere threats of mortals. It's after this encounter with Yahweh, the one that he had said previously he had been very jealous for, that he had been able to do such mighty wonders and miracles through. It was after he realized that God does not have to shout to make himself known, that he doesn't need huge demonstrations of cataclysmic events to reveal himself when he realized he need only pass by as a whisper. And the one who's had their hearts regenerated, to him, that whisper is bigger than an F5 tornado. And the reality of the word that is spoken of in John 1.1, the God of creation is the same that is spoken of in 1 Kings 19.9, the one who spoke to Elijah, who reveals himself to this man in a whisper. And he is the same one that is whispering to us. In chapter 14 of Genesis, he reveals himself to us. In the Prince of Salem, the Prince of Peace, the King of Peace, the Prophet of the God of the Most High God. There are many within Christendom that would hold that Melchizedek is just a type or a picture of Christ, but he, he can't be Christ himself since Christ has not been born yet. Those same folks, though, will readily admit that Christ was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, as told to us in, in Revelation 13, 8. But they can't fathom how Jesus would walk the earth before he was born. But as proof that Jesus was walking the earth, the great high priest, I'm going to use five sections of the text to prove that he did this, that he was this man. One's from Genesis 17, one's from Psalm 110, and three are from the book of Hebrews. So let's look at those Hebrew verses first, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. The author there begins laying the groundwork for the mediation of Christ as being of greater value than the mediation brought on by high priests of the law. And beginning in verse 1, he tells us, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the other people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And here's the, laid, the groundwork that's being laid out. God chose Aaron as a high priest. And once again, there was no casting call. There's not the same opportunity given to everybody, offered to everybody. And if you choose it, you can be a high priest too. He calls his high priest. And this office, this is a privilege. And it was given to a single man who was called and chosen. And for this reason, Aaron has no rights or no bragging rights. And then we have verses 5 and 6. 
So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today, I have begotten you. And he also said in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here is the difference between the priest of the law and Jesus who predates the law. It is said that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in the next chapter, the writer then will circle back around to this truth. Once again, at the end of that chapter, says, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6.20. And that term order would normally indicate a succession of priests. That's what that term order means. Priest dying and gets passed on to the next high priest, who dies and gets passed on to the next high priest. But in the thousand-year time span, from Melchizedek to Christ, there are no successors. There are no deaths. And the author then again doubles back around in using this Melchizedek as a demonstration of the greatness of our salvation in Hebrews chapter 7. In verse 3, speaking of this king of Salem, the priest called Melchizedek, we read, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So the question that I have to ask you there, does that forever that was written there, does that forever mean forever? Or does it just mean the forever after the birth of Christ, but not the forever before the birth of Christ? And now we can examine what is said about this Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a prophetic psalm that speaks of the coming Messiah. It begins, the Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. From the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And there's no argument made that this is not referring to the coming Messiah. And then in verse 4, God says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, that forever word. And now it's tied in with that order of Melchizedek term. And to help us understand the meaning of that forever word that is, first, that is given in the first part, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, I may not be a linguist, but it seems to me that he's making it pretty clear that forever means forever. And then he speaks of what this forever priest is going to do in verses 5 through 7 of, of Psalm 139. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And finally, I want to draw your attention to one more verse. Okay, actually, it's going to be two. But they come from the same place. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. 
walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And here is the telling by God that the promise that followed that command to go back in chapter 12 was actually a precursor to a covenant. And here in verse 1, we are told that God appeared to Abram. Abram saw God and lived. Even though we know in Exodus 33:20 that no one can see God and live. And even though that we are told that God is spirit and not physical, John 4:24, that no one has ever seen the Father, John 6:46. Who then is it that Abram is speaking to here in Genesis 17? He acknowledges that it's God, but it can't be the Father. And it can't be the spirit. Who then is it? And the ironic thing is that it was in meeting this prince of peace, this king of peace, that meeting seemed so memorable, so memorable for Abram. So much so that he does something that he never is ever told of ever doing ever again. He gives a tenth of his spoils to him. But after that event, after this event, these three verses, his life is marked by an ever-increasing dependence on the Lord. His relationship with the Lord is so much in, more intimate and personal. And it wasn't because of that great victory over those overwhelming odds and that much better supplied army. It was in that bread, in that wine, that the king of Salem, the three lines that are devoted to him in the book of Genesis, it was in this sacrifice by this king that Abram was changed. And it was when Abram saw the king of peace that he was able to understand that it was this king of peace that brought that representation of the peace that would be made with all those that are citizens of that kingdom. It was then that he had peace. And saints, as we read through the accounts in the book of Genesis, we are meant to wonder at the God of your salvation and that we don't wonder at him. This is simply amazing. And it proves just how tainted we are in our fallen mortal bodies. But we are meant to wonder at this God who would condescend to giving you this account of his faithfulness Saints, never wonder at these men that are given to us in these accounts. Wonder at the God. When you read these accounts and you read of these men, think of the God that is behind them, that is orchestrating all those things around them, the God that is directing them, the God that held them fast to the end. These accounts are given to us because he is the same God that is going to do the same 
for you. He will hold you fast. And your life may look like this. May look chaotic. May look like I have no clue what's going on. I don't know why God is doing this. Why he's sending these problems, these situations in my life right now. I could just not deal with this. Thank you very much. But it's in those times when you become utterly undone, just like Elijah, just like Abram. It's then, it's then that God will whisper to you. And when he does, when he does, you will thank God for anything and everything that he has brought about to make that happen. Let's pray.